The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, January 9th. I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. And I'm your host, Faye Parks. In tonight's news, a ranked voting bill gets a public hearing in the state assembly. A report analyzes how climate change impacts Latin communities around the U.S. A UW-Madison professor is using stem cell technology to study brain development. And in the second half, we take a closer look at public domain law and celebrate a variety of snowy animals. This is Christian Knutson and Faye Parks with your Tuesday local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in snowy and windy downtown Madison. Settle in, folks. The snow is here. The city of Madison says snowplows are set to take to the streets tonight, starting at 10 p.m., to clear away inches of dense, wet snow that have already accumulated today. Plowing the city is a long affair, and that process likely won't be wrapped up until the beginning of tomorrow afternoon. The city says snow plowing takes 12 to 14 hours to complete once it starts, as 150 trucks traverse around 1,800 miles of pavement. Meanwhile, the city has declared a snow emergency. That means alternate side parking restrictions are in effect for all residents, meaning you should park on the even number side of the street by 1 a.m. If you're in charge of your property, make sure to shovel your sidewalk by noon tomorrow. Under city rules, property owners are required to clear snow on their sidewalks by noon the day after the snow stops. And you must clear the whole sidewalk, not just the narrow path. The city of Madison is spreading less salt this winter, according to an update first announced last fall. The streets division says it will reduce the number of roads that it keeps salted this winter by about 6% in order to reduce pollution in the lakes and groundwater. The main streets to remain salted include bus routes, roads around schools and hospitals, and major thoroughfares. This winter, the city's salt routes make up approximately 778 miles of traffic lanes within the city. That's less than half of all the traffic lanes in Madison. Madison schools were closed today, along with all other after-school and co-curricular activities. No word yet on any plans for school closings tomorrow. Three snow days are built in the school calendar each year. But if the Madison School District exceeds that number, they have a new plan for how they'll have students make up instructional time, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Instead of adding extra minutes to school days or extra days of school, the district will instead switch to asynchronous learning. Elementary students will complete worksheets at home, while middle and high school students will complete assignments virtually. In other education news, a new proposal from Republican lawmakers would alter the state's education preparation programs in an attempt to address Wisconsin's teacher shortage. Under this bill, future educators could spend more time with students, but less time in their own classrooms. The bill would allow aspiring teachers to spend two years in traditional college. It would then allow them to get a degree if they spent their remaining two years student teaching. The state's Department of Public Instruction, which would be tasked with developing the teacher apprenticeship model, hasn't yet formed an official position on the proposal, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. In more news from the State House, a bill in the legislature would make sure local officials are in the loop regarding refugee resettlement in their areas, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The Republican-backed measure follows a recent controversy in Eau Claire over plans by a refugee agency to open an office in the city and help resettle dozens of people. Local officials weren't informed about the plan and faced backlash from residents who opposed it. 
The bill's requirements include having county officials issue reports and host public forums on proposed refugee resettlement plans. Racine election officials were not authorized under state law when they used the van as a mobile absentee voting site in 2022. That's according to a ruling yesterday by a Racine County Circuit Court judge, the Associated Press reports. The voting van traveled to different neighborhoods in Racine, offering early in-person voting in the February, April, and August elections in 2022. City election officials said it reduced the need to staff multiple remote polling sites. But state Republicans and the right-wing law firm Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty sued. They argued the van made the election more susceptible to voter fraud and that it unfairly boosted Democratic turnout. The judge ruled nothing in state law allows for mobile election vehicles. An appeal could ultimately end up in front of the liberal-leaning Wisconsin Supreme Court. What's likely Madison's oldest family-owned bar will pour its last drink in four weeks, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The Silver Dollar Tavern, located across from Central Library and near to the top of State Street, first opened in 1933, just after Prohibition ended. For the 90 years since then, it's been owned by four generations of the same family, proving a popular dive bar destination and a rare spot for shuffleboard downtown. The Silver Dollar will close its final will close its final early morning last call on Saturday, February 3rd. The property is set to be sold to Hub D Properties as part of a potential redevelopment for the high traffic just off the top State Street. Those were the headlines, and now on to the rest of today's top stories. A state assembly committee held a public hearing today at the Capitol on a broad slate of election-related bills. Driving much of today's proceedings is a proposal that would change how Wisconsinites vote in congressional elections. The bill has a swath of proponents and detractors who testified extensively today. Mixed in with the policy wonks and lobbyists were a few surprises, with even the CEO of Marcus Theaters lending his support to this proposal. WORT reporter Ella Saf has more. It was a busy day for public hearings for the Assembly Committee on Campaigns and Elections. For hours, the committee heard public testimony on a bill that would introduce instant runoff voting in Wisconsin. The bill would only apply to congressional races, meaning your U.S. representative and senator in Congress. It wouldn't apply to presidential, local, or other statewide races. Under the bill, congressional candidates would appear on the same primary ballot, and voters would be allowed to rank their top choices, regardless of party affiliation, from one to five. The change would allow Wisconsinites to cast ballots for members of both parties, a move that proponents say would increase bipartisanship. Detractors, though, say the process is confusing and difficult to count. Under the bill, a voter's ballot would first be cast for their highest-ranked candidate. Once the tallying is done, if that candidate doesn't receive more than 50% of the vote, counting starts again, this time eliminating the candidate with the lowest percentage of first-choice votes. Voters who had the eliminated candidate as their first choice would have their votes transferred to their next highest pick. That process would repeat until a candidate received a 50% majority. Austin Ramirez and Catherine Gell are co-founders of nonprofit advocacy organization Democracy Found, which has been pushing the switch to instant runoff voting. They call the idea of ranking the top five candidates on a primary ballot final five voting. Ramirez said their advocacy is born out of frustration with our country's election process. Washington is broken. We need a fix. It makes no sense that 85% of elections are decided in the primary. Uh, And so we assembled a group of Wisconsinites uh, across the political spectrum. We've got 
uh, everyone from the far right to the far left at all have very uh, individual and particular policy preferences that span the, the range of, of ideologies, but they all agree that DC is broken and that we need a, a more effective way to both elect and incentivize the people that we send to office. A corollary bill in the Senate received a public hearing in December, where both advocates and opponents spoke. The bill hasn't moved out of committee. In both hearings, advocates of instant runoff voting pointed to the potential benefits of reaching more bipartisan consensus and reducing negative campaigning. Opponents say instant runoff voting is too complicated for voters and is difficult to coordinate on Election Day. Some speakers claim the switch could benefit conservative candidates more than liberals. That claim, though, is hard to verify. Timothy Chapman is the founder of Heritage Action for America, a conservative policy advocacy organization. He testified at today's hearing, saying that the switch would give more power to third-party candidates and would allow them to better pressure establishment candidates. Under instant runoff voting, third-party candidates would no longer play the spoiler role. Voters know that if their first choice isn't elected, their vote is automatically transferred to their second choice, which could give third-party candidates a much larger role in Wisconsin's future congressional primaries if the bill were to pass. Nick Ramos, executive director of political advocacy group The Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, says he doesn't think instant runoff voting would give an advantage to either conservatives or liberals. I, I honestly don't think so. And I think, I mean, I think that's interesting that, you know, that was one of the takes that came out in the hearing, because, I mean, I've read some other articles and there's individuals saying that this bill is a Trojan horse for the Democrat Party. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, if you really study the bill and, and look at, just how it it would operate in this state. I mean, during the partisan primary process, I mean, the five uh, top vote getters would advance to a general election. It's not dependent upon the traditional partisan primary system that we have here. Neither the bill in the Senate nor the Assembly has moved out of committee this session, though they've still gotten farther than previous attempts. The Associated Press reports that the same proposal to introduce instant runoff voting was introduced in the last two legislative sessions, but went nowhere. Currently, only Maine and Alaska utilize instant runoff voting in all statewide elections. But Alaska and Maine allow more than five candidates to be ranked, while Wisconsinites would be limited to their top five choices. Instant runoff voting is also used in municipal elections for about five dozen counties and cities across the country, according to a 2023 analysis by the MIT Election Data Science Lab. In total, public comment for the proposal took about five hours today, and the Committee on Elections wrapped up just an hour or two ago, also hearing shorter public testimony on other election-related proposals. Those proposals included a bill to require random audits of elections, a proposal to require disclosures when political ads use AI, and a ban on foreign national contributions to referendum committees. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Ella Saff. Stem cell biologists are gaining new insight into the human brain thanks to technology developed at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Randolph Ashton is the Associate Director of UW-Madison's Stem Cell and Regenerative Medicine Center. Earlier today, he spoke with WORT news producer Faye Parks to learn how Rosetta Ray technology works and its potential medical uses. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Ashton. Thank you for having me. So in layman's terms, can you explain how Rosette Array technology works? Yeah, essentially, Rosette Array technology is a model of early brain and spinal cord development, early being within the first trimester of embryonic development. 
And essentially, we've created lots of tissues that are arrayed, and they generate these structures called rosettes, which model some of that first stage of brain and spinal cord formation. And we can make a lot of these tissues in our cell culture dishes, which provides a high-throughput screening platform. So the technology itself broadly can be used with any human stem cell lines. So we can get these from patients or we can use approved governmental stem cell lines in order to create rosette arrays. And the technology allows us really to just screen what happens very early in brain and spinal cord development, again, in the first trimester in a high throughput or in a very fast and quantitative manner. When did UW researchers develop this technology and how has it been refined over time? This technology was actually developed in my lab with myself and several grad students. We started developing this technology back in 2014, and we initially started generating the protocols to create the cell types that model early brain and spinal cord development. We then integrated that with material science in order to create the Rosetta arrays, which gives you a very nice array presentation of hundreds of tissues to thousands of tissues in a culture dish. And that was done around 2016. We published that in 2018, and we've been now refining it, commercializing it sort of through the pandemic. <laughs> through Neurovetta, which is a startup out of my lab, which licensed the technology from UW-Madison. And we have basically now made it a screening pipeline so that we can do this with lots of different cell types, lots of different human cell lines, patients, as well as genetically engineered cell lines. What is fascinating is that you can start to see hallmarks of diseases, particularly diseases that cause congenital birth defects, such as spinal bifida or neural tube defects, as well as autism spectrum disorder for various autism backgrounds within our array experimental system. And so this has created significant interest because what it allows us to do is we can essentially model a patient's disorder via their genetic background within our array, and we can then use that experimental system to screen for potential therapeutics that could either help to mitigate the severity of the disease in the case of autism spectrum disorder or actually try to start to prevent the disease from occurring at all if the therapeutics are taken in a prophylactic sense during the stages of conception and early embryonic development to prevent the disorders from occurring in the first place. So that is the excitement behind the technology and the fact that it can be used to conduct precision medicine So I believe it was the study that you co-authored with the University of Southern California that would pertain to autism spectrum disorder. When you mentioned mitigating the severity, what exactly does that mean? So autism spectrum disorder, and I really didn't, I'm an engineer by background in training and have applied that to stem cell and tissue engineering. And when we started to look for applications of our technology, we started to look at disorders out there. And autism is fascinating because right now, about one in 36 of every children before the age of eight are diagnosed with some form of autism. And autism has very broad spectrum. So not everybody is, you know, severely affected. A lot of people that have autism are very functioning. And that's a complicated concept, but um, now for patients that are diagnosed with autism, it should come as no surprise that it's a developmental disorder, meaning that somewhere along the normal pathway of neural development, particularly in the brain, there's been something that's slightly different that has caused a symptom of autism, a dysfunction of a particular portion or, or region of the brain. And so what we've actually been able to show in that particular study, this is a collaboration with Dr. Jordan Quadrado out at USC, a brilliant neuroscientist. We essentially provided them the platform, showed them how to do it, and essentially they could screen the lines that they had generated from patients as well as genetically engineered lines to have the autism risk gene with our rosetta platform. 
And instead of having a, a two-month experimental process, they now had an eight-day experimental process. And so it accelerated their ability to show a quantitative phenotype with their autism spectrum disorder patient lines, essentially detecting the risk of autism. And that was the crux of the publication to show the particular genetic mutation that they were looking at causes these changes in early brain development. This has been done for one autism risk gene, um, one of the most prevalent autism risk genes, or one that has the highest correlation with autism spectrum disorder diagnosis. But there are hundreds of different, hundreds of thousands, potentially, um, autism genetic backgrounds. And so right now, what we're looking for is we're trying to get funding so that we can continue to see how many different backgrounds technology could be used for a quantitative assessment of risk for autism spectrum disorder. Now, once we have that model, what we can then do is screen against FDA-approved drugs, various chemical pharmaceutical drug libraries to see if there are compounds that essentially can rescue our models. So we have a decrease in the efficiency of our model due to the autism risk genetic background, and we basically screen with chemicals and or drugs, essential drugs, to see if they can rescue or reduce that risk that's seen in our model. And if they can, then they become sort of potential targets for drugs that a patient can use because we can model particular patients within our system that can be applied to specific genetic backgrounds for autism. And that could potentially, if taken early enough, mitigate some of the effects of autism because brain development occurs all the way through your teenage years, really. And so if you could try to start to correct some of that dysfunction, then you might be able to decrease the severity of, of an autism patient if you can get them treated early enough. Now, autism is an inherited, highly inherited disorder. And so typically families can have a background of autism. So you might have family member that has autism that is sort of directly related to you. And that may mean that you and your genetic background have a higher risk for having a pregnancy affected by autism than other people who have no family history of autism. And so in that case, we could potentially still create a Rosetta Ray model from your themselves and try to model that risk that you have as well and come up with potential compounds that you could take as a, in a prophylactic sense in order to decrease the likelihood of you having a pregnancy affected by autism. So you mentioned some of these medical applications of this research that you've conducted. Are there any ethical pitfalls to these applications? And if so, how might the scientific community address those concerns? Well, the only ethical pitfall is that it really costs money. <laughs> And so access to the technology is something that is always a concern because you want everybody to have access to it, not just those who can afford it. Hopefully things will eventually get picked up by insurance companies and then it can be more broadly disseminated. But even then, that still limits access. So in terms of the ethical nature, just in terms of the model that we're generating, there's really no concerns there. We're not creating full human brains or spinal cords in a dish. We're creating just the earliest stages of formation and it essentially is a non-viable tissue outside of our culture dish. So just to clarify, you're not striving for a cure for autism. It's just that you're seeking a better understanding. Is that right? So autism is an extremely complex sort of umbrella term of disorders. So there are lots of different types of autism. What our platform can do is to help accelerate the discovery of potential quote-unquote cures for autism spectrum disorder. If you can see that risk for autism in our model, then you can screen for potential medicines that can potentially mitigate the severity of their autism, or if they are trying to have children, to use in a prophylactic sense to prevent the future pregnancies of having a pregnancy affected by autism. So it is very much driving towards a cure for specific autism backgrounds. 
Again, autism is a huge spectrum. And so there are very highly functioning autistic persons that see it as a benefit because a lot of times they can have, you know, enhanced focus, enhanced capabilities because of their autism. And so for those people, it may not be something that they're looking for. However, there are autistic patients that are severely disabled and need lifelong care. I mean, that is an extreme financial burden on the parents, the family, the community. And so for those patients, if we could prevent or decrease the severity of their autism, then that would be a huge improvement in their quality of life. And those are the people that we are seeking to help. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Dr. Ashton. Thank you, Beth. That was Dr. Randolph Ashton, Associate Director of UW-Madison's Stem Cell and Regenerative Medicine Center. Using stem cell technology he developed in his lab, researchers are gaining more insight into the human brain. Studies show more than half the U.S. Latino population resides in states with the highest levels of climate change threats, such as air pollution, extreme heat, and flooding. At the same time, Latinos are on track to become 30% of the nation's population by 2050. A new report outlines how climate change is challenging their health, safety, food security, livelihoods, and cultural legacy. Wisconsin News Connection's Mike Moen has the details. As climate change makes extreme weather events more common globally, new findings show Latinos often face the most significant effects on their health, safety, and livelihoods. The report from the Hispanic Access Foundation details those impacts and how climate change even erodes cultural legacy when neighborhoods undergo gentrification, displacing traditional communities. Conservation Program Manager Vanessa Munoz says Latinos in every state are experiencing challenges to their mental health and identity due to climate change. Some places might suffer severe temperatures and others might be more exposed to flooding or to a lot of wildfires, which is often where a lot of the Latino communities reside. In Wisconsin, the DNR says communities of color often bear the brunt of air pollution and extreme weather events fueled by climate change. And state health officials say Latinos are the fastest growing racial and ethnic population in Wisconsin. According to the Pew Research Center, 71 percent of Latino adults around the country say climate change already affects their local community. To promote what she calls a just transition towards a climate-friendly economy for all people, Munoz says the report includes a toolkit and policy recommendations to help communities better preserve their Latino heritage. One of the ways it's joining groups and forces to really protect our lands and prevent that from expanding, to prevent further loss and damage, which is necessary in these times of climate change. Latinos are projected to make up 30 percent of the U.S. population by 2050, and over half reside in states with the highest levels of climate change threats. The Hispanic Access Foundation released its cultural erosion report at the recent COP28 conference in Dubai. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org.
The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Faye Parks, here with my co-host, Christian Knudsen. Thank you for joining us. Every year on January 1st, media lovers celebrate Public Domain Day. That's when thousands of new books, plays, films, recordings, and other artistic works are newly released from the cages of copyright protection. Last week, WORT's news director, Shelley Pittman, spoke to Alan Rubel, director of the Information School at UW-Madison. He shared some advice on how to navigate the complex world of copyright protection. I'd rather be dead, buried in the sea. You're listening to a song called Lottie Lottie Blues, recorded in Chicago by the uncrowned queen of the blues, Ida Cox. The song was released on the Paramount record label, which was started by the Wisconsin Chair Company uh, and based out of Grafton, Wisconsin in the 1920s. And this recording is one of thousands of artistic works that entered the public domain earlier this week. Indeed, at the start of each year, we get thousands of new books, plays, films, and recordings just like this one, newly released from the cages of copyright protection. The most recognizable figure released into the public domain for 2024, well, that'd be Mickey Mouse, or at least a version of Mickey Mouse from the 1928 short film Steamboat Willie. Let's hear a little clip of that Steamboat Willie. So that film was the debut for Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse and also one of the first films ever to use synchronized sound. And uh, Mickey and Minnie's entrance to the public domain means creators are free to use, adapt, or do whatever they want with this version without any threat of legal action. Creative types are already lining up to do so. One filmmaker announced this week plans to make Steamboat Willie a horror comedy, I believe. The plot of that is taking unsuspecting passengers hostage. A bit different. You could do something similar, just as so long as you steer clear of using any image of Mickey created by Disney after 1928. It's a lot of rules to keep track of, and here to help us navigate the complex world of copyright protection and celebrate Public Domain Day is UW-Madison professor Alan Rubel. He's a professor at UW-Madison, and he teaches ethics and directs the Information School and formerly headed up the Center for Law, Justice, and Society. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. So start us off. What is the public domain, and how does something enter the public domain? That's a really good question, and I think the easiest thing to make sense of the public domain is to just say a little bit about what copyright is. Sure. So copyright is a congressionally granted monopoly over intellectual works. So writings, plays, films, music, art, and so forth, as as you explained in your introduction. And what copyright does is give authors or copyright owners, doesn't always have to be the author, certain exclusive rights to reproduce a work, to distribute the work, put it up online, and to make derivative works from it. So copyright is this set of rights that allow the copyright holder to prevent others from doing things. And what the public domain is, is the lack of such exclusive rights. So something is in copyright, meaning the copyright holder has these powers, and when a work 
such as the Steamboat Willie version of Mickey Mouse goes in the public domain. As I think you put it really nicely in the, in the introduction here, it means people can do what they want with that stuff in the public domain. And so people are now posting the Steamboat Willie film on, on YouTube. They are taking images and clips and reorganizing them to make different kinds of films. And then you've talked about a derivative work, a, a Steamboat Willie um, horror flick. You can do all that, whereas before you had very limited ability to do that. You had fair use, but we can get into that a little bit, but you did not have the freedom that you have now. The Wikipedia page for Steamboat Willie, if you go into the talk section where all the editors talk about how to moderate the page, there are people there, editors there, who have been talking about waiting to post the image of Steamboat Willie and Mickey Mouse <laughs> since the inception of Wikipedia, which, uh, yeah, people have been waiting for, for a while. And in fact, copyright protection lasts a long time. There are kind of different rules and they seem to have changed over the last century for how long copyright lasts. Can you briefly outline when copyright expires for certain things? Yeah, so that's a very complicated story and, okay. it, and it can get really tedious really fast. So I want to I want to just note a couple of key benchmarks just to set the stage here. Sure. So for old stuff, older copyrighted stuff, music is a little weird. That is recorded music is a little different, but older copyrighted stuff like Steamboat Willie and some of the um, books that have come into public domain this year, stuff moves into public domain after 95 years. For recent stuff, roughly post-1978, it's life of the author plus 70 years. There's a lot more nuances, but that's roughly it. And that's changed over the years. And one of the reasons that Mickey Mouse coming to the public domain being such a big deal is that those changes have kind of tracked Mickey Mouse's potential move into the public domain. That is, there was originally a 56-year uh, term for copyright that was going to expire in the 80s. That was extended until the early 2000s. And then in 1998, there was another extension of copyright right as Mickey Mouse was about to come into the public domain, which pushed the copyright term to 95 years. And so that thing about Wikipedia that you say is really, really interesting because that's, that's kind of the lifetime of Wikipedia, right? So in 1998, this new Copyright Act passed, and that sort of precluded the early versions of Wikipedia from getting to post Mickey Mouse in the early 2000s. So this year seems to be sort of a watershed moment, primarily because of Mickey and Minnie Mouse. And um, I didn't tell you I'd be asking this, but it occurred to me late last night that, you know, this is a product of Disney, right? Walt Disney. And Disney has long been a pretty litigious company in upholding its copyrights and fighting to extend copyright protections and lobbying to do that because they want to retain these rights and make money off of it as long as possible. Can you kind of speak to that at all? I'm not an expert on the, the precise contours of the litigation, but yes, you're absolutely right. The Disney is highly protective of its intellectual property, and they were a key part of lobbying efforts to extend copyright terms, in part for Mickey Mouse, but also all of their other intellectual property dating back to the 20s and 30s, which you know will continue to allow them to use those bits of intellectual property to make money for much more extended time. In fact, a number of people have referred to the 1998 extensions as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act. Now, you know, that's rhetoric, and I, don't, I, I think that there are a lot of people who wanted to extend copyright, and, you know, it's more complicated than just Disney. But at the same time, they were an important player, and they do have this reputation. So I think there is this really important cultural watershed of 
you know, finally Mickey Mouse is in the public domain. And, you know, Disney is now part of the public domain, or, or at least a, a key part of Disney is now part of the public domain. And that's, that's really important. I was reading one of the plethora of articles about this online and Variety, I think, had talked to a creator, a cartoonist who had uh, attempted parody of Mickey Mouse doing some pretty obscene things. Um, And he was sued by Disney in this, I think, the 70s. Right. And so Disney has this reputation of actually enforcing copyright claims and uh, protecting itself against copyright infringement, even though there's a lot of copyright infringement that probably happens that never kind of goes to court or gets pursued. Disney has a reputation of actually pursuing it. And on that subject, there are still some caveats to Mickey and Minnie being in the public domain. The 1928 version of them is in the public domain from this this film, the first film where they were introduced, their debut. But what are the limitations that people should be aware of if they maybe want to make a parody of Mickey Mouse doing some obscene things? What, what should they know? <laughs> That's a great question, and I want to describe that in two ways. So first, you mentioned the litigiousness and parody, you know, seeing parodies of, of Mickey Mouse back from decades ago. What's interesting about Disney and other people's litigiousness is that it can kind of stymie, not kind of, it, can, it does stymie even parodies that are permissible under copyright law. So copyright laws also have a protection for use of copyrighted stuff called fair use. And certain kinds of work, depending on you know what it does, whether it's transformative, how much of the copyrighted work is used and so forth, are not infringing uses. So Disney's willingness to sue you know, just creates a burden for people even doing legitimate fair use parodies because, you know, who can go up against Disney? So mm. there's, that's a limitation that Disney creates that may not be legitimate. But on the other hand, the, the question you actually asked is, what does one need to be wary of? And that is that Disney has its own right to make derivative works of the original Steamboat Willie version of Mickey Mouse. And so they've changed Mickey over the years. They've changed how he looks. You know, he he looks a little more friendly now. He's not quite as angular and rat-like. His eyes are different. His clothes are different. And the closer one gets to those more recent and iconic versions of Mickey Mouse, the more likely it is that you're infringing the copyright of Disney. And the closer you are, you can make your own changes, right? But they can't be changes that aren't obvious or sort of minimal and look a lot like the more recent Disney changes. That's one of the big things. Moreover, plots, right? You can't say copy the plot of later Mickey Mouse films, right? You sticking close to Steamboat Willie or making your own derivative works, that's permissible. But, you know, really tracking later films would, would probably not be. Yeah, and you want to avoid infringing on something else, which is called trademark, right? Disney still has yeah, a trade. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, yeah. So, so right. It gives you, <laughs> I that was that's sort of the obvious one, and thank you for prompting me on that. I I, got, I I was thinking about fair use and this huge thing, right? So you need to be really careful of a couple of things. One is that you don't use Mickey Mouse, any version of Mickey Mouse, to imply that you are Disney or that would allow consumers or others to be persuaded or or deceived into thinking that whatever it is you're selling or whatever you're doing is indeed a Disney-sanctioned product if it's not. And this is where 
intellectual property gets uh, gets dicey because trademark is one version of intellectual property that doesn't go into the public domain. That is somebody, a company or anybody can use a particular image or name that they've associated with their trade and built a reputation on indefinitely. But that might also be copyrighted. And the copyrighted version can be used for certain things as long as it doesn't violate sort of the trademark thing, which is about identifying a particular entity that that is holding itself out in business or in the public. Does that make sense? That got a little complicated. It makes sense to me, but I think it illustrates the broader (laughs) point of there's a lot of things to still be aware of, even though Mickey and Minnie Mouse are still in, are are now in the public domain. We're talking about the public domain and copyright protection and uh, public domain day, which every year we celebrate on January 1st as new works enter the public domain. And as we kind of run up on our time, I'm talking with Alan Rubel, a professor at UW Madison who specializes in this stuff. Alan, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out for folks that the Center for the Study of the Public Domain at Duke Law School maintains a very active listing each year of things that are coming into the public domain. Other things this year include the first edition of Tigger from Woody the Pooh, uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover, uh, the Three Penny Opera by Bertold Brecht. Is there anything that you're particularly excited about coming into the domain, or is this just like all too old for you still to be excited about it? I think that the Tigger is uh, particularly interesting because a lot of people have also been doing interesting things with with Winnie the Pooh. So there was a, a sort of a horror slasher Winnie the Pooh, Pooh uh, movie called Blood and Honey, and you know you could see Tigger being part of that franchise. There's an environmental parable that uh, was written about a deforested hundred acre wood that Pooh was in, and and you know I think that you know that one has such cultural resonance that adding a character like Tigger to it is really important. And then I'm also excited for some of the sounds and films that can go up on YouTube and people can start using more. I do have a little bit of regret that this didn't happen uh, 20 years ago, you know, as it would have absent the 1998 act. And we haven't had the, the next 20 years of stuff either, which would take us into the 30s and 40s. But it is very exciting every year to, to have more things available for the rest of us to use and share and do with uh, lots of cool things. I have to share one more that I saw coming into the public domain before we go. It's a children's book called Millions of Cats. And it's the oldest American picture book still in print and entered the domain on Monday, the public domain on Monday. And uh, I thought it was really cute. And then I read the plot of it and it's basically all the cats eat each other. So it's it's really dark and maybe um, maybe speaks to <laughs> how things have changed over time. I don't think it would be printed uh, uh, as a new thing today. Is there anything else you want to add, Professor Alan Rubel, before we go? I could spend a whole hour on this. Yeah, well, it's been really lovely talking, and um, I really appreciate that, you, that you've done this because I think it is a really important thing in our intellectual um, and cultural heritage in the U.S. I think that what I'll add is I have seen, too, some interesting commentary about what people might want to do with Steamboat Willie film. Um, if you watch the original, you know, it wouldn't meet our current OSHA standards or uh, labor standards. It's very interesting to see kind of a, an update of – Steamboat Willie with, you know, workplace hazards and, um, uh, you know, OSHA violations. labor kind of strike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think those would be real. Those would be really cool. And I think that it will 
spark some some really fun and and valuable cultural artifacts to, to come into existence. I think all the animals in that film get turned into musical instruments at some point. They so uh, yeah. that's one. Um, cool. Well, we've been talking about Public Domain Day, the turnover on the first of the year when formerly copyrighted works go into the public domain. Thank you, Professor Alan Rubel, for joining me this morning. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Alan Rubel teaches ethics and directs the Information School at UW-Madison and formerly headed up the Center for Law, Justice, and Society. It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. In a quite seasonal edition of Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg shares the stories of her favorite snowy animals. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I'm excited to talk about snowy animals. Snowy animals. There's so many of them that I could choose from, but today, because of the snowy weather this week, I wanted to talk about a couple of my favorite winter animals that we do see uncommonly, but at the Wildlife Center here at Dane County Humane Society. So the first one is the snowy owl. We have not received a snowy owl in 2024 yet, but it does not mean it won't happen soon. Snowy owls are one of those species that can get people out into the environment to go look at birds in the middle of winter because of how cool they are and how rare they can be here in the state. So most of the time, I would say that snowy owls are going to stay north in some of the Arctic regions, especially in Canada. So they do winter in southern Canada, but they'll be even further north than that. They go through periods that are called eruption years, where they will follow their food source, which of course is going to be your lovely small rodents. They will sometimes come down even further into the United States. There's like about a maybe about midway through the U.S. There's kind of a line that they mark that's called the eruptive line, where every few years when there are a lot of babies born and there's a really high population of snowy owls where they might need to distribute themselves further and or follow their food sources, then they will go further and further south. And that's called an eruption year. And so snowy owls will come down further into Wisconsin. They'll even go as far as Kansas, which I think is really crazy, but they will be bright white with black spots and they are probably one of my favorite winter snowy birds because they have the fuzziest feet. They have feathers that cover all the way down to the base of their legs down to their toes and it's pretty amazing. Also fun fact about the snowy owl is that they can eat more than 1600 lemmings in a single year. That's a lot of little small rodents. All right, so that was the snowy owl. We have rehabilitated many of those at Dane County Humane Society. The snow bunting is one, however, that we have not ever rehabilitated. That's one that I'm sure we'll probably see someday. So male snow buntings are in the high Arctic breeding grounds, and they can go into temperatures at negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit, which I think is kind of crazy. So the males actually get to their breeding grounds first, and then the females join them about three to four weeks later, kind of like the opposite of our red-winged blackbirds here in Wisconsin that come for the 
spring, but that's where females come first and then the males join. And then they are these beautiful little itty bitty birds that are kind of, you know, brown and white. They're in the sparrow family and they are bright white in the winter to help try to camouflage themselves. But they have these beautiful black wing tips, some black in their tail and a little bit of like this chestnut reddish color in the top of their head feathers. So they've got an orangish beak and black legs. And I just think they're absolutely gorgeous. So we, again, don't see them often in rehabilitation. And since I haven't seen one at DC, CHS, it would be a really interesting bird, I think, to admit and work with. Likely going to be more sparrow-like, so probably, I want to say relatively easy to work with, because as long as you give them a good food variety, that is hopefully going to be enticing. They'll eat it. But where can you find them around here? Usually I've seen snow buntings a little bit further north in Dane County, so I would recommend going up in the agricultural fields and kind of the rocky gravel roadways up in like the Wanakee and DeForest areas around Goose Pond. Sometimes you can find them. So those are my favorite favorite areas to look for snow buntings and they're going to be low to the ground and along the road. And then the other one I want to highlight is our weasels. So if you didn't know, weasels can actually turn their coat color for the winter. And the three weasel species that do that are the least weasel, the long-tailed weasel, well, and the short-tailed weasel. So I should say there's three species of them that actually do because there's a couple in the same family, but also the stoat or the ermine. People sometimes mix those up with minks, but they actually are different species. But all of those weasels will turn their coat color white so that they are able to better camouflage themselves from predators in the wintertime. And that's really good in the Wisconsin snow. So weasels um, are really cool. We don't get a ton of them at the Humane Society for rehabilitation, but we do have some living on the property, which I think is really fun. And those weasels are going to be obviously doing a lot for rodent control in, you know, they stalk their prey and they'll pounce on it and then they'll cache it. I think they have amazing sense of hearing and smell and they are just tiny little predators that you probably don't see very often. But they are really great animals to be on the lookout for. And we do have them all throughout the state. So if you see them in the winter, they'll be popping their little heads out of the snow and they'll kind of be this off whitish color. So you may find them. Otherwise, in the summertime, they'll be all brown. And yeah, they're they're very loud. They're very fast. They're very quick. They're very cool. Maybe I'll do another radio segment here on WORT about weasels. That's a great one for another week. All right. Well, thanks for listening here today. This has been our segment on different winter animals, some of our favorites, the snowy owl, the snow bunting, and the weasels that turn white in the winter here in Wisconsin. And these are all species that we work with as rehabilitators. Again, just kind of a shout out of appreciation to those species for what they are and that they live here and that we do live alongside them, even in an urban environment. It's pretty amazing. So be on the lookout for animals that are sick or injured or orphaned this year. We are available to help with any situation if you find an animal like that. Our phone number is 608-287-3235 if you do need any assistance. And otherwise, thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein Wilson. Your reporter was Ella Saff. Special thanks to feature contributor Jackie Sandberg and Wisconsin News Connection's Mike Moen. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. My co-host Faye Parks produced this new newscast. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Faye Parks. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast and subscribe wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Up next is Spanish Language News with Anuistro Patio. Good night.